This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to RAND. I'm Robert Lempert, the director of RAND's Frederick S. Pardee Center for Longer Range Global Policy and the Future Human Condition. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our speaker, David Groves. David is a policy researcher at the RAND Corporation. He received his Ph.D. in policy analysis from the Pardee RAND Graduate School. Dave specializes in the development and use of exploratory modeling and robust decision-making methods for long-term policy analysis. Recently, he has focused on applying these innovative methods to water resource planning, and has worked closely with several California water agencies and departments to help them address climate change in their long-term planning. Please join me in welcoming David Groves. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Rob, for the introduction. Thanks to Rand for hosting this event and for everyone for showing up. Um, This is a a great crowd. Water is obviously a hugely important topic to everyone here. So my, my big challenge today is to try to figure out how to make what I do often, you know, behind my computers and, you know, in, in uh, water agencies, back rooms, you know, make it exciting for you all here. And so we'll, we'll see if I can do that today. Um, I'm going to start off by just highlighting, um, you know, the, the topic of today's briefing, which is California water's challenges. However, I want to emphasize the focus on climate change and, and particularly on how we as a society and how water agencies can p- prepare for climate change, given that it could have potential, potentially serious impacts, but also we don't really have a clue how it's going to unfold over the decades. So, you know, there's several narratives playing out on climate change in America, which is probably worth just highlighting right now. You know, scientists are making increasingly dire predictions about, you know, the fact that it's inevitable that um, there are significant changes underway and on the horizon, and these changes could have seriously serious impacts to civilization, including including ours. There's other views suggesting that this that that view I just mentioned is overblown or you know even a hoax. Um, and then we've got sort of the media, the politicians, public perception that's kind of oscillating. Um, it was really interesting. On in, uh, October 15th, the New York Times published a piece entitled, Where Did Global Warming Go? And in it, it contrasted, you know, 2008 when presidential candidates Obama and McCain both were calling for serious actions uh, at the national level to address this climate change threat. And, you know, I was comparing it today where national action right now is, is, is all but dead for the moment and uh, climate change is, I think it's a you know, nasty word, uh, in, in Washington right now. So, you know, that's the backdrop uh, against which researchers like I think about climate change, water agencies think about climate change, and, and the public thinks about climate change. So, you know, for the, for the management of our water resources, climate change could be a big deal. It could be. We're not, we're not sure, but um, if... It's very likely, and if it is, it could warrant uh, some real investments now and changes in the way we do things to, to prepare for it. Um, but one thing is for certain. We really don't know with a lot of precision how climate change is going to play out. You know, is it going to lead to new you know, permanent uh, changes in rainfall regimes? Is it going to increase variability of rainfall or heat waves? Um, you know, how, how fast will, will temperatures rise? Just, just a moderate amount or very, very significantly? Um, what about, you know, uh, events like melting of the polar ice caps? You know, how will Greenland's ice sheets respond to changes in the atmosphere? 
Um, and, and so these, all of these questions have, you know, mean that the impacts that climate change could have on water resources, you know, it makes those very, very uncertain. And so the question is, how should water management agencies prepare for these potentially significant but uh, highly uncertain changes in, in a way that's, that's responsible, that, that's, that doesn't cost too much money but also is, is prudent and um, will, will help us um, you know, navigate the future in a climate change condition, uh, world. So when I talk about water agencies, let me just you know, step back a little bit and just mention who I'm talking about. So I'm talking about um, organizations that supply water to you know, users like me and you, um, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, uh, City of Santa Monica, as well as regional and state agencies that act as water wholesalers, such as Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, the California Department of Water Resources. We also have federal agencies that play, play important roles, like the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. So, so these are the these are the kind of organizations that that think about how climate change might impact water resources because you know it's their job and responsibility to to make sure that we have the water resources that we need uh, to grow and prosper as a society. So, why does this matter to to you all and to other folks, um, you know, outside this room? Well, poor planning I think can really cost us dearly. Um, Underinvestment and over the coming years can mean future water scarcity with significant economic, social, and environmental consequences. Overinvestment means higher water bills to you guys without any any um, you know notable benefits. And so, planning appropriately for the future and including climate change is you know a professional interest and focus of, of myself. But it's it's also very, very important to everybody, and, and it really affects you all, and we all should be concerned and, and hopeful that water agencies are planning responsibly for this challenge. So today I'm going to talk about four related topics. I'm going to start off by just highlighting some of the potential impacts of climate change on water resources. I'll then talk about what's going on behind the scenes at many, uh, at several of our um, water leading water agencies in the West um, to talk uh, to discuss how they're addressing climate change despite the fact that it's, it's really uh, uncertain and unclear how it's going to unfold. I'll also talk about how RAND has been developing and applying uh, methodologies and approaches for um, addressing climate change and uncertainty in, in planning. And lastly, I'll, I'll present some overarching findings and recommendations uh, that are coming out of our work. Unfortunately, I don't have the silver bullet solution to climate change for California water problems. Sorry if that was why you're coming here today. Well, okay, so stick around because I think I still have a few few things <laughs> that that will be of interest in terms of you know letting you know how how professionals whose job it is to plan for these things are thinking about climate change and and what Rand as a community is doing to help. So first topic: the impact of climate change on water resources. So scientists, you know, have. Uh, arguably have have significant amount of evidence that suggests that the continued accumulation of greenhouse gases um, is going to lead to increased temperatures and potentially influence water patterns. You know, this, this, can, have, this can affect weather and hydrologic conditions in a wide range of, of ways. Um, you know, significantly in California, increasing temperatures can lead to reduction in the area of mountains that receive snowfall in the winter. Uh, snowpack is California's greatest water reservoir, and with warmer temperatures, there's a, there's a, a like, it's likely that less, less, of that, uh, less of that mountain range will receive snow and instead will receive rain. So that's uh, storing less snowpack for, um, for spring and summer when, when the water is more needed. So less, less storage of snow leads to more river runoff during winter and spring when we don't need it, and less runoff uh, during the summer, uh, spring, late spring and summer when we do need it. 
Uh, let's see, rising temperatures. It'll also require how much water we need to do things we want to do, like grow food, like irrigate our lawns and our landscapings. And, and so that this is a potentially very important impact. Uh, global temperature increases um, possibly can exacerbate natural cycles of natural hydrologic cycles. It could extend droughts. It could lead to periods of more and intense, um, more intense rains. So there's all, you know, it's not always climate change means drier, hotter conditions. It could be, you know, cooler, wetter conditions for a time and then switch back to hotter and wetter. And all of these changes um, pose potential challenges for um, planning our, and planning our natural resources. So all of these effects are extremely uncertain. Uh, however, there is a strong consensus that s some change is, is underway. We've, we've observed some changes. Maybe it's natural. Maybe it's induced by uh, burning fossil fuels. That kind of doesn't matter for the discussion that I, that I want to have today because what we do know is that change may happen, and we need to be prepared for it. And so we want to figure out how can we ad adapt the way we think about long-term water planning so that we can um, – you know, prepare successfully for a wide range of future conditions. So that leads me to the second, um, second topic, which is what water agencies are doing. So water agencies, as, as many of you know, typically plan for fu the future needs by making estimates about what the water needs in their region are going to be, be it urban uses or agricultural uses. Um, and then, you know, they look at different options for supplying those needs. If those needs are greater than available supplies, they'll consider different, um, different investments. Maybe, maybe uh, build a new, a new reservoir or, or invest in recycling or desalination or, or um, promote water-saving devices and increasing water use efficiency. But, you know, fund fundamentally, until rather recently, the basic assumption was that the past, in terms of hydrology or in terms of weather and rainfall and river flow is going to be similar to the past. It's not going to be exactly the same, but, you know, if you look back the last 50 years, the last 100 years, that pattern of rainfall and wet years and dry years, uh, you know, we can project that forward and make plans according to what that, um, what that, what those conditions would be. Well, given that we now have evidence that the climates are changing, you know, what does that mean for that process, so what that approach of using the past to predict the future? So they're, they're, water agencies are looking for ways to improve, adapt, evolve their planning processes to assimilate this new information about a changing climate. And, and, and notably, they're very interested in doing it in a way that they don't have to, they don't have to decide or, or, hedge their, you know, or place their bets on one particular view of the future. You know, we've talked to countless water agencies, water managers, and, and they're, they're looking for ways to plan prudently without having to say to their boards, you know, such and such research institute says the climate's changing this way, therefore we need these investments, we need to do this stuff. That's not a credible argument. And instead they're looking for, you know, here's what we need to do board now so that we can be confident that as the climate unfolds, we will be in a good position to address those challenges. And that's a fundamentally different way to think about planning. And, and for people who do analysis and support of planning, it requires some new tools. So uh, that gets to the, the third um, main area of, of my talk, which is what we at RAND have been doing over the past seven, eight, eight years or so. Um, 
so we've been what we've been doing is is working directly with the water agencies that are grappling with this with with this planning challenge. So we've been working with the California Department of Water Resources, Metropolitan Water District of Southern California, the Bureau of Reclamation, some smaller water agencies throughout California, Inland Empire Utilities Agency. We talked about that a few years back in a forum similar to this. And, and what we've been doing with them is showing them how new planning approaches um, based on robust decision methods or a, um, a methodology called robust decision making, which has been pioneered at RAND, you know, how these approaches you know, can help the agencies evaluate and develop long-term plans that are robust. And, and what that means is that these are plans that are going to perform well across a wide range of potential future conditions. Climate change may be more severe, maybe less severe. We're looking for plans that are going to accommodate both. So, you know, so that gets to the point I want to emphasize. You know, what is a robust long-term plan? Well, it's, it's something that's going to perform very well or sufficiently well despite how the future unfolds. And, but notably, it it's also tends not to be a prescriptive, you know, do this now, do this next, do this following that, and, and then you'll, you'll be done and you'll have succeeded. Instead, it's more of a you know, do the, take these things. Do these things now. These are critical actions. Monitor these conditions. It, it's specific. You know, watch particular conditions in your watershed, or, or monitor groundwater levels, or demand how demand's evolving. And when you and, and if you see certain patterns emerging, then we can show now that at that point they, you would need to do additional take additional action or different actions. And we can show through this process, we can model how that would play out so that when we're talking to water boards today, we can say, hey, we don't know how the future is going to unfold, but here's a set, here are the things you need to do now, and here's some rules that if you follow, we can be pretty sure that, we're, that this agency is going to navigate the challenges ahead of it. And so, so these, these, you know, we call them robust long-term plans. You know, they're typically less expensive than what you might do if you plan for the worst. They're also um, shown, you know, we can show with our, with, our, with our models that they would likely perform better than one plan that's, you know, designed specifically for one prediction of the future. And so these, you know, helping agencies develop these robust plans is, is something that we've been working on um, in a variety of, variety of settings um, over the past several years. And, and I, you know, what we're finding is that this really resonates with the plan with planners and and planners are are able to take take this kind of thinking and begin to um, you know adapt their planning process to to incorporate this planning uh, or this this approach so now I want to get a little bit um, more specific about what we've been finding over um, you know over the uh, past several years in these engagements with water agencies one one thing that's that's kind of interesting is Climate change, in many contexts, climate change, when we look at, you know, what, what, how might climate change affect an a, a water agency, you know, climate change isn't always by itself the biggest problem. It's, it's really when you combine climate change with other changes that are underway, be it demographic changes and, and increased water needs in urban, in urban areas or what new, new water requirements for an environmental uh, you know, rivers and streams and wetlands and things like that. It's when you combine climate change with these other factors that are, that are already underway do you begin to see the big challenges. And so I, I think it's important to put it in context with other challenges. This is not some threat that is 
you know, I mean, it's unprecedented in many ways, but so is addressing future needs of a growing population. These are challenges. You know, this is just another one of many large challenges that we face. And when we think about these things together, I think we can sometimes come up with, you know, it, it's help, helpful to spur action, and it also can, we can come up with more creative solutions. Um, let's see. When large-scale, lumpy, large-scale investments Oftentimes, we find that those are, those are not necessarily the best strategies, and they're not always ro as robust as smaller, dif dif dis dispersed um, investments and, um, and water, strat water management strategies. So, you know, the idea here is that if we see, you know, if we look at the climate change threat and we say, okay, well, we, we need to build a huge new facility or, um, you know, that's a, that's a commitment. It's a commitment to these facilities that, you know, we may not need it. It may be that our predictions are wrong. And so what we're finding in, in, our, in our work is that right now we can fo there's lots of things we can focus on developing, you know, local resources, continuing the, the efficiency improvements that, have, that we've seen across California and, and, and the world, that those are often the, the most appropriate first steps to take. And as, as we learn more about how climate is changing, as we understand better the, the risks and rewards of various technological solutions, we, we can then defer some of those, those larger um, single investments to later. And I think that's, that's a pretty important conclusion because um, you know, we don't want to go off in one direction too prematurely and then, and then, re and then regret it in the long run. Um, another, another important finding is that there's a lot of uncertainty about what water planners and water agencies can actually do. Um, you know, if you look at all the 25-year plans of major water agencies in California, and every big water agency needs to do one of these things every five years, called urban water management plans. You know, they all are. You know, almost all of them are expecting to increase supply somehow to meet customer needs. Um, you know, be it you know new wastewater reuse facilities, desalination, some uh, approach to recovering groundwater that was previously wasn't wasn't fit for use, ac or acquisition of new supplies or rights from other water users. You know, all of these, you know, or many of these solutions require a lot of time to implement. And if you and if you look back at at the success of implementing these kinds of strategies, you're going to see that you know, these things can take decades and decades to happen. And so there is a lot of uncertainty. And just to, just laying out a plan and assuming that that can be implemented can be the the critical, you know, the weak link in in, in a strategy for adapting to climate change. So one of the things that we do is we look very carefully at the uncertainty underneath the plan itself. And and we ask ourselves, you know, what would happen if one aspect of this plan really can't be implemented? And so I, I think that's that's a important issue to consider as your as water agencies put together their strategy is do it using a mixture of, of tools that have different levels of you know proven um, you know or track record and and putting together a real diverse um, mixture of strategies uh, let's see another thing we're finding is that increased flexibility in how water is used is probably the one of the, the largest or the, or the biggest insurance policies for for the West you know there's significant you know, inefficiencies in terms of the way water is used. We use water in some areas, um, or water, water is very inexpensive in some areas and very expensive in other areas, and what that leads to is in some areas we use it for less valuable purposes than others. And so there's a lot of mutually beneficial trades that could occur and, and redistribute that water from lower value uses to higher value uses. Now this topic and this, this approach is, is not 
you know, is not without its challenges. Um, there are other um, factors to consider, and that really leads to my last my last point in terms of what we've been finding, which is that the the mitigating or managing the consequences of our solutions in many respects is, is, is as large of a challenge as adapting to climate change. So in other words, you know, as we come up with solutions, we need to really think carefully about what are the impacts of those solutions and are they, you know, are they acceptable and how can we manage them? So you know, some examples. You know, how will natural systems be affected if we do move water from areas where it's used for low-value agricultural purposes to either higher-value agricultural purposes or cities? How, uh, what's the impact on the natural system going to be? We, our planning tools need to account for that. Um, how do we ensure fairness and equity as, uh, you know, as um, economic forces are used to, to again, move, move water from lower to higher value uses? What are the energy implications of new sources? You know, when we think about um, you know, the benefits of, of desalination or, or some other water treatment, um, we can't just consider cost alone. You know, we need to think about the, the, the impact of, you know, on, on future emissions. We live in California, and then there's you know, regulations and potentially more regulations about emissions of um, greenhouse gases. So we need to factor those, those things in when we, when we make our investment decisions. And so some of the uh, approaches to addressing climate change get tied up into um, you know, furthering climate change. Um, you know, and also the, the issue of, of costs is, is really, really critical. In these times, the, the water agencies don't have, you know, it's, it's not a good time for water agencies to be raising rates, um, yet solutions to all of the problems, including climate change, will require investment. And so it's very critical that, that these investment choices are made in a prudent fashion so that, so that the impact on, on rates is, is ex politically acceptable. Um, and so, you know, I think, you know, as we sort of look forward in, in our work, you know, we find actually bringing in these unintended, consequen unintended consequences of our solutions into the planning problem and into the, into the mix is, is something that's critically important and, um, and, and an area of, of active research. So, you know, how, how are we, so, so we're, working to integrate these concerns into the planning process, you know, and we're doing this by broadening how agencies evaluate their plans. We're trying to help agencies think about the robustness and the resilience of their plans, and we're broadening uncertainties that, that the agencies are, are thinking about in their, in their planning process. And, and we're changing the nature of their plans from, you know, single static investment plans to a dynamic series of near-term options, conditions to monitor, and then actions to take later if, if uh, need be. So I'd like to conclude the talk and, and then uh, take, you know, before taking questions by highlighting some, of, some key points, uh, just, just some takeaways that, that I hope um, you, you all can get. get. You know, first is climate change may significantly impact water resources in, in California and the world. We don't know for sure. We don't know how much, but it may, and, and, that, and that's, that's very important. You know, adapting to these changes is tricky. We don't want to do too much. We don't want to do too little. We don't know exactly the nature of the changes, and this poses real problems for our traditional standard planning approach. You know, the success of our water agencies and the success of how we manage our, our water resources does affect all of us, and it does so in terms of the impact on rates, the impact on the environment, uh, the impact on you know, our, the ability for cities and agricultural regions to prosper uh, in the future. New planning methods are available to help with these, with these challenges. And, 
and if we and if we and we can use these to come up with robust adaptation plans. And and I think lastly, what we're finding is that you know, when we do focus on these robust plans, we see that it's important to do things now. Even though this is a long-term problem, you know, 30 or 20, 30, 40 years into the future, there are significant things that we need to do today, but they're manageable. And so over the coming years, you know, we're hoping that through this, you know, through this new way of planning, we can identify those critical things that must be done today, and we can credibly say, we're considering climate change, we understand it could be a threat, and we've identified some things we're going to do now, and, and, and we're going to be we're going to be okay. We're taking care of this problem. And then, so that's our goal. And I really appreciate your attention, and look forward to answering uh, any questions that you may have that I can answer. Thank you. We have some time for some questions. So if you have some, please just raise your hand, and uh, myself and uh, Nora will be able to identify you. Uh, thank you for your talk. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, there seem to be some competing interests here. Corporate interests seem to be pushing back against a lot of the climate regulations that are proposed out of Washington. At the same time, I imagine they have some interest in the availability and price of clean water. Um, you have things like ethanol. There is clearly a strategic interest in getting off of dependency on Middle East oil, but using water to grow corn, to burn in our cars, seems contradictory as well. And finally, my understanding is that uh, uh, raising cattle for meat is a very water-intensive process. And I don't know how many gallons, but I know it's a lot to create a pound of beef for the uh, population. seems to run counter to being conservative, conservative about using water. So how do you deal with those conflicting interests? Oh, that's, a, that's a good question, and, and, you, and you raise a lot of I – think, I think what I, a main point that I, that I come away from your comment is, is, is a good one, which is we may not, and nor should we, necessarily try to use water the same way we do now in the future. Um, you know, as we have growing you know, numbers of users of water and growing you know, increased number of mouths to feed, you know, we, we may need to use water in different ways and use it for more efficient means. So this is, this is to say, you know, I don't think water planners are in the business of telling you how to use your water, but we can manage water in a way that high-value uses of water, um, you know, have access to water and, and low-value, you know, make water, can, can free up water for, for other uses. Um, so, so I guess I guess to say, you know, in terms of the planning, or the planning approach, it's it's really thinking more, you know, it's expanding the the kinds of factors that we consider in the analysis and the ways that we evaluate the success of of, of a plan. So, including environmental metrics when we're evaluating how a long-term plan can perform, that's something that's really tricky because there's so many different ways to measure it, and you, you can't always quantify it and turn it into a dollar. So, what we're looking for is when we talk about robust plans, we're looking for robust plans that are robust with respect to reliability as well as variety of different ways that we can measure environmental performance. So, maybe that you know through those kinds of tools we can capture some of the issues that, that you raised there. Thank you. We have a question in the center here. I've been reading several articles uh, recently that uh, farmers are um, being subsidized for l leaving their land fallow. And if they're getting X number of dollars for, let's say, an, an acre per acre of land to grow alfalfa, 
they're getting X number of dollars to do the same thing by not growing anything. And there's a real question of whether what the side effects of not growing things will be because they're subsidized and guaranteed a certain amount, which makes them not want to grow. Yeah, I think, I think this issue gets to, gets to my point that how we use water and how we allocate water is, is critical. But, you know, agricultural policies certainly have an impact on water use, without a doubt. And, um, you know, I don't look at that specific issue, but it's, it's clear that, you know, if we are inc encouraging certain types of activities that, that use water, that's going to, going to impact how much water um, is required and, and – uh, uh, and so we need to bring those kinds of issues in, into the fold. But, um, I mean, I guess that really speaks to the fact that when, you know, we need to think about how our policies interact, our agricultural policies, with our water policies. Um, to, and, and we may need to do a better job of coupling those things as we try to meet, you know, the, the larger challenges that, that we face ahead. I have a question in the back. I'd like to pick up one of your closing comments when you that many of the things we need to do are manageable. Here we are in Southern California, 20 million people live here. We import roughly 70% of our water from the, the Delta, 50, roughly 50% there, and 19 or 20% from the Colorado. And the probability of, of losing a significant fraction of that water is non-trivial. Uh, over decades from climate change or from an event in the Delta where we could lose that 50 percent with one earthquake with levees that are worse than those that were in, in New Orleans before Katrina. So in robust d strategies, my reading of some of the, the reports that you people have written, and I'm a great admirer of them, is that you act to minimize regret. So if you were the czar of water, mm -hmm. and if you wanted to minimize regret for those of us who live in Southern California, what are, the, some, what are three or four of the things you would do now? Oh, that, that you're, you're asking for the silver bullet, which I said I wasn't going to no, give you. No, no I'm, 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 I think we need a portfolio of solutions. I, I, I absolutely agree. Um, so I think in terms of what we must do now is continue a lot of the things that we are doing, such as... Um, increasing water use efficiency. We buy ourselves a lot of time in terms of preparing for climate change as, as well as some other challenges by just ensuring that you know our economy and our households can 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 meet their needs through less water. So efficiency is is clearly something that that should continue, and, and it has. It, I'm not saying that it needs to change it, but it just needs to continue for certain. There's also a lot of options, especially in Southern California, for local resource development. There are, there are ways to better manage our groundwater, taking advantage of water that otherwise would flow out into the ocean and putting it in, in storing it in groundwater basins. Um, that those strategies are, you know, they're very diverse, but there's a lot of potential out there, and, and studies, you know, a variety of studies um, have, have, you know, shown that, that these are solutions that, that can be, um, you know, achieved. Um, I think there's also, you know, we also need to pursue some of these 
some of these uh, solutions in the Delta. I, I think that it's going to be important, not necessarily to you know pull the trigger on that investment, but to, to continue the process of, of understanding what that investment will be, what will it cost, what will it benefit, its benefits be. So you know, I think our, our research is, is very supportive of, of the work that the Metropolitan Water District is doing in terms of, of exploring that you know the solution for a, a uh, you know a Delta fix. So, I, I mean, I think it's sort of a combination of, you know, primarily focusing on local supplies because we can do a lot of those things now without large regrets if it turns out that we don't need those supplies, while also thinking very carefully about the larger investments in terms of fixing the delta or moving to more, more have a use of desalination, which has its, has its drawbacks as well as advantages. Um, and, and so that, that's what I would recommend, and I think that would constitute a pretty good start through a robust plan. We have a question to your left. I was wondering when you have done consulting with the Department of Water Resources, mm -hmm. um, why is it that they consistently in the past have always been significantly um, over-projecting in their future usage with their water planning? Um, you mean in terms of uh, their demands? Yes. I think that, that's a good question. I think there's a lot of underestimate. It, it, the way water is being used is changing, and we often underpredict changes. And so in the past, there was an assumption that you need, you know, five gallons to flush your toilet, and, and then new, new technologies come on. Now you can do it at 1.2 gallons or even less. And, and I think there's it's, it's not that uncommon to underestimate the ad adoption rates of these technologies, and, and that can lead to higher projections. But actually, you know, we've been working with the Inland Empire Utilities Agency. We did a big study, you know, a num several years back, and um, we recently sort of talked to them again, say, you know, how are things going? You know, is, is your robust plan working for you? And, and what we found, or what they told us is, you know, the interesting thing is that they, they too, overestimated their demand. They're, they're just finding that, you know, new houses are more water efficient than, than they predict, and then people are also adopting water-using technologies more rapidly and, and changing the way they use water. So I think it's partially just a, a – it's just hard to predict those kinds of changes and, and keep – you know, extending a past trend into the future is a, is a really easy way to start a prediction, and, and, but, you know, reality is it's changing. So I think that's why there's a lot of – overestimates there. I mean, our work actually began, you know, a few years back looking at those demand projections and trying to acknowledge that we don't really, you know, there's so much uncertainty in future demand, so we should factor that into our planning, and that's actually one of the ways that we began working with DWR is working on their, their demand forecasts. We have a question in the center. Okay, thank you. Um, <coughs> no, we... <laughs> in California don't live in a vacuum, but we also um, have to deal with other states and with national policy. And uh, Canada, a few years ago, um, demonstrated that without a national policy, they were having issues of uh, water shortages, and the, each province was not able to deal with it until they got their act together. Uh, is our act together in Washington? Um, do we have a national uh, <laughs> water policy? Uh, because it certainly will impact us I, here. I, that question is a little bit too easy for me to address, so I don't think I'll take that. <laughs> um, no, I mean, clearly we don't, we don't have a national water policy that, that is 
up to the task ahead of it. Um, I don't focus my work on national policies at this stage, so I don't have anything particular to, to recommend except that the work that we do do, uh, you know, highlights time and time again how interrelated local agencies are with regional agencies and regional agencies are with state and federal. So, you know, our work in Southern California is a lot centered around getting the local and agencies to work with Metropolitan. Well, that certainly extends to, you know, working working with the uh, Bureau of Reclamation on the Colorado. And and so I think you're, there's definitely a big need to address this problem in part at, at a national level. But I think that Many of the solutions are – I mean, all, most of the solutions, if not all, are going to be implemented by the locally or regionally. However, you know, having, having someone guiding some, – some entity guiding the process would be very helpful, and I think we do need that. We have a question to your left. With the Delta region uh, playing such an important role in California's uh, water system uh, and its continual um, – Subsistence uh, and the the, uh, the the difficulties that arise um, with a constantly changing environment like that, and the idea of the peripheral canal mm -hmm. um, coming up in politics. Where does uh, large scale changes to the system come into play when looking into the future? It's a, certainly a possibility, and so our work when we when we look when we work with Metropolitan Water District on their long term planning. One of the conversations we're having is, you know, how reliable is is our exports from that region? You know, should we be assuming that those will be there, even if we pursue a delta fix, or or should we have some contingency plans in in case, like you said, that things things degrade or go a different way, or or there's there's other restrictions on on um, on exports from that region? So, you know, from a Southern California perspective. You know, we don't have complete control over that <laughs> environment or, you know, even a lot of control over that environment, so we need to plan accordingly. And um, But then there's a whole other conversation to have with those people involved in managing that resource and, and, and trying to fix and solve that problem. And that has a lot of the same themes. There, It's a very, very complex hydrological, biological, physical system that requires when you know put, when thinking about a solution we need to be very explicit about what assumptions we're making we need to acknowledge that climate change is going to you know Im impact the system while we're doing lots of things to fix the system and and you know we're still trying to get you know the you know the, the water community is still trying to work out all of those effects but you know certainly from our perspective we want to make sure that as we think of strategies for fixing the delta that it's it's very very clear and explicit about the range of risks that climate change presents and make sure that that solution can change over time to respond to the changing climate. So, I have a question in the back. You know, as you know, um, water is a very complex issue, which I think you've repeated several times. And just, you know, from a pedestrian point of view, um, you know, the, the rights of surface water are regulated quite differently than the rights of subsurface water in, the, in this state and in the mm -hmm. country in general, particularly in this state. So we've heard the story over and over that rainfall will reduce the snowpack in the Sierra, which will reduce the surface water and possibly the groundwater. Um, but I have not heard anything about if that climate change might actually give more rainfall to other areas that are currently arid, turning them into a potential um, opportunity for things like agriculture and water. 
But I think more importantly, when we look at water, movement of surface water from the delta down to the south is incredibly energy intensive, incredibly energy intensive, and it kills biological creatures as well in the way. And even locally, the city of Santa Monica, the city of South Pasadena, many of the other local jurisdictions that pump water, pump it at a cost of electricity that's astronomical um, for what they get. So my question to you is, currently the subsurface water rights in the state of California are patchwork regulated. And thus in the Central Valley with the, the growing of um, wine, we have water being pumped at an astronomical rate, depleting those aquifers, and seawater is coming in, and we're having other pollutants come in. So I'm wondering, as you look at climate change, if you've looked at the weather pattern change, one, to Southern California, and two, if you've looked at any offering of subsurface regulation on a much more statewide level. Um, well, I, a couple of comments in there. I mean, in terms of how we manage, how groundwater resources are managed, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. It, they're managed, in some cases they're not managed, and, and in others it's, you know, patchwork of, of agencies, as you suggested. And, and, that, and that, makes it, that makes it challenging because certainly if they were, um, you know, it makes it difficult to a, know what's know what's being pumped. So we have big data gaps in knowing how groundwater resources are being used, and certainly having data is is one way to increase your ability to figure out what to do in the future. So we're lacking data. Um, we're we're also lacking the means to, um, you know, to in some cases, you know halt the decline of those uh, of certain basins now a lot of get basins do get adjudicated after a while and then and then they are managed and actually in those contexts we found that groundwater can be productively you know are managed in a way that that is sustainable um, and, and and that's a very very important strategy so I guess I, I would say that we need to look towards bringing those areas that are currently un, un, unmanaged and being over over exploited, bring bring those into into the fold so that we can you know use them as a tool for 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 making up for lost storage in terms of snowpack and and for just you know more um, you know properly using water resources. So you know I guess my answer is yes. There's a lot of challenges on on groundwater management and and we do need to move towards that. I'm not working specifically on any groundwater projects, but there's certainly a lot of uh, you know a lot of uh, Momentum in terms of, of, of trying to better manage those resources. We have a question to your left. California has a very long coastline. Uh, at what point would uh, desalinization be financially feasible? And are you considering such a modality in your studies? Well, I, I think it depends on to, to what purpose. And uh, certainly in, 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 in some contexts, desalination may be a very good solution. Um, it's certainly... I would argue it's it's unlikely, and you know we don't find that the, given the costs and the uncertainties associated with them, and the other you know, and, the, and the other effects of desalination in terms of energy, and I, I don't see it as being a single solution to our challenges. And and I'm not saying you're proposing that, um, I, but I do think that it plays it will play a role. I, I think it's you know my own personal view is that it's hard to imagine that we won't do any desalination on our coast. Um, I don't think that it's necessary that we dot the entire coastline with desalination plants. There's a lot of water in this state. There's a lot of water in this state even under climate change um, projections. It's, it's how we use it. And the big question is, is it better, you know, uh, according to many different ways to think about better, is it better to use energy to desalinate and create new water, or is it better to use the, way, the water that we get 
more naturally in different ways and, and make it stretch it further? I think it's a little bit of both, but it's certainly, um, you know, we certainly look at desalination as an, as an option, but it's one of those options that is particularly expensive right now. It's, it's got other, you know, detractions, energy intensive environmental benefits. So right now as kind of, you know, now that's the solution. We can't say that, but you know, I think it's a, it's certainly good, good to keep that option open. And I wouldn't be surprised if it, it's taken advantage of. Okay. Um, much the, the gentleman um, before who had mentioned about the energy intensiveness of, of transporting this water, I've heard, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but 15 to 20 percent of, of a lot of our energy use is actually transporting water, which relates heavily with the climate change issue as well. But I'm not, I've, I've just recently moved here, and I'm kind of surprised at, in Southern California, the lack of, or appears to be the lack of, um, onus on Southern California to, in essence, get its act together to start doing much more in energy or water conservation. Things like you know, gray water systems and rain barrels and things like that from a residential standpoint as well as our agriculture um, imbalance as far as water rights. So I guess my, my question is, the elephant in the room seems to be, is there going to be a point re relatively soon where Southern California is going to have to make some really difficult sacrifices and change some of the way they're currently using water because, again, a lot of the water is being transported down here, meaning that we don't have it. So are there going to be some things that's going to be required of us? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, a good point. Well, first of all, I, I think that Southern California has done a lot over the past decade and decades in changing the way it uses water. Um, if you look at, you know, how much water the region uses, it's been relatively fat, flat given large population growth, and that's attributable to, to you know, efficiency um, improvements. Certainly there's a lot more we can do. You know, rainwater capture may be one of the solutions, um, you know, in certain areas that may make a lot of sense. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, are we going to need to sacrifice to, you know, in the future? I think there are, there, there's a possibility that there will be times when sacrifice is required. We are going to have droughts, and, and I don't think we are going to be able to drought-proof this state given the challenges. And, we've, you know, we've never been drought-proof before. And drought, when we have droughts, we have economic impacts, and I think those will continue. I think the goal is, though, is, you know, identifying the things we can do now to lessen those so that it doesn't impose such a hardship on, you know, both the consumers but as, as well as, as um, you know, in, environmental um, you know, environmental assets. So, I think that um, I think you're going to see. I, I think we can plan so that that we it gradually we ch we continue to shift our uses towards more efficient ways of using water. I don't think there's going to be a year where you know all of a sudden you know your, your uh, landscaping is going to you know change forever. Um, but I think we are getting close to where you know more frequently are we going to be in situations where we're supply is tight and and that's going to hopefully you know lead to continued adoption of those strategies that we need to pursue i have a question in the back in the center hi thanks for your talk mm -hmm. um can you talk a little bit about the challenges of uh, all these agencies that you've been referring to rely on the proceeds of water sales <laughs> to make the investments that you're asking them to make which will diminish their water sales. So there's some questions here about how we can continue to make the investments we need to make and what sort of incentive you can get uh, these agencies to be thinking this way to, to diminish their income. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great point. I'll just to, for, the, for the audience's benefit, it's, it's a, you know, 
having a, a one way to one strategy for you know ensuring that you have enough water to supply is to induce your customers not to want to buy it and and you know <laughs> agencies you know they they they're financed through water rates and this is a huge problem and it's it's a I think it's a factor that is increasingly coming up in the work that we do that we need to think through the rate impacts of these future climate conditions as well as you know whatever strategy is um, is imposed on them. Um, I'm not an, I'm not an expert in this in this area, but it is something that that is you know it's sort of an overlay that that complicates how you know what agencies can do and and in, in order to prepare while you know not raising rates so much that customers go elsewhere. I mean this this actually comes up when you think about you know the metropolitan partnership with local agencies. Metropolitan imports water from Colorado and Northern California, those water rates are going up um, due to a variety of factors. And you know, at some point, local agencies might find that it's, it's cheaper just to go and build a desal plan or develop their own local supplies rather than purchasing Metropolitan's water. And so this is a, this is a real challenge. I'm not saying that this is happening immediately, but it's something that, that's on the horizon and needs to be factored into, into how MET responds. So sorry I don't have a precise answer of what, what to do there, but it is certainly a, a really important issue, one that we're beginning to address more seriously. I've got a question in the front. Yeah. I was wondering if the uh, California breakdown of like approximately 80% agriculture, uh, 8% um, residential and 8% industrial use is kind of typical for the country. And if it is, how come, you know, you don't concentrate more on agriculture and using market forces to to raise their rates, because I believe residential in like Los Angeles, it's eight to 12 times what they pay, mm -hmm. and yeah. use it market forces to, you know, force efficiencies on agriculture, because if you fixed agriculture, you pretty much fixed the problem in California. Yeah, I think, I think you're getting at one of the points that I made earlier, which is that there is a lot of water in the state, and it's, it's used, it's allocated in a way that, like you said, you know, around 80% is used in agriculture, and that, there's a lot of savings that could be, that could be, that could come out of agriculture. That said, the agricultural industry also is heavily impacted when, you know, when they're rationing, and it, and it does, you know, impact you know, they're, they're, they're the, economy, the local economies and, and workers. So it, it's not like it's just sitting there waiting to be, you know, used to more efficient, um, in more efficient ways. Um, so, but I think the point is, is that we have a lot of water and we need to, and, and agencies are looking to ways of making mutually beneficial trades with agricultural interests to bring some of that water so that, you know, it's, you, so that efficiency alone doesn't have to be the solution to the problem. Um, but let me also back to your original or your first question is, you know, is it usual for agriculture to be 80 percent? Um, certainly not across the country. I mean, we live in a portion of the country where it's, it's you know, we don't get as much rainfall as, as elsewhere. So our agricultural, we have very fertile soils, but we also have a situation where, you know, our growing season is, is particularly the dry season. And so we, you know, we do use a lot of water for that purpose. I have a question here in the front. Uh, coincidentally, the gentleman there asked the gut of my question, and we're, I think okay. we're really dealing with the third, the third rail of politics, and ergo the third rail of water in this this state. It, it's easy to say that agriculture uses 80 percent, mm -hmm. but it's the nature of that use. We grow in California. We are the leading producer in the United States of cotton, rice, and alfalfa. These are three highly intensive water crops, and they're made possible 
by subsidized, i.e., cheap water. Mm -hmm. Is there any discussion on that going on and, and serious planning? Because I think that's the way to wrest more water out of agriculture or at least make what they use more realistic. Yeah. Um, my work has been focused more on local and regional water agencies that don't really have much of a say in what agricultural <laughs> interests pay for their water. But clearly, you're, you're, you're absolutely right that the and, and I've raised it a couple times that it, it, it is an important issue, and I think it's a it's a big opportunity. And you know, the agencies that we work with do reach out to have these agricultural interests and and do a procure supply from them. The question is, I think you know, the underlying question is, is that enough? You know, can will agencies reach out and 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 acquire the water, or are there other barriers and regulations? Do we need to reform water rights and? That's a topic I'm definitely not an expert in, but I do know there's, you know, there is a lot of discussion on that, and it may play an important role in the solution. I've got a question to your left, right here. Yes. How are the water agencies reacting to the fact that MWD is only promising to, gu to guarantee three out of ten years <coughs> of water to them, and how many are actively considering recycling, I like um, Orange County, some of Orange County is doing the uh, euphemistic P to T. T to T. T to T. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, that way. <laughs> um, water, I mean, I, we, we don't work with every water agency, so I can't tell you sort of statistically how, how they're reacting, but in general, water agencies are developing contingency plans. They acknowledge that metro the reliability of metropolitan water supplies is not 100%, and therefore, you know, and, and studies suggest that, and, and MET itself, that, that it's, they can't guarantee, you know, full reliability. So I think water agencies across Southern California, the, you know, certainly the ones we've been working with, are considering a wide range of, of options in terms of, you know, treated wastewater for drinking water. Um, I still think there's some, still some hesitancy on that, but there's there's there is a lot of momentum in, in using it for outdoor irrigation and um, you know even mixing it in with the urban supplies by either putting it back in the groundwater, which some agencies already do, or putting it into um, reservoirs and you know that, that's more like the way rivers work. You know, the Colorado River takes on lots of lots of treated wastewater before it turns into our drinking water. So I, I think you know that is that is a debate and a conversation that is unfolding and and I think there's movement there. I don't know when it's going to be commonplace that we you know have a closed loop there. Um, but water look but basically the answer to your question is local water agencies are certainly aware that Mets Mets reliability is not 100% and they're looking to their local options um, and and that's and I think that's what they should be doing. We have time for one last question, and I apologize that we weren't able to get to all of them, but luckily I know our speaker is staying for a few minutes afterwards. In planning the broad spectrum of possibilities that you do, to what extent do you consider the role of government as a factor in the preservation of water? For example, when agricultural land is uh, rezoned for commercial purposes, say for uh, big buildings and residences and so forth, or when there are additional taxes for the more water you use, how do you put that into all your planning? Uh, that's a good question. It's it's actually an, uh, an area that we're we're actively 
interested in. Um, we don't. We haven't actually built, factored in those 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 issues into our existing and past studies. But um, you know, we're definitely looking for opportunities to expand who's part of the policy making body. You know, is it just the water agencies or is it the water agencies plus the land use agencies? If you include the land use agencies, then you may not have to take population growth as, you know, just some trend that you have to react to. You may be able to influence it. And so um, I, my personal view is that the more we can coordinate planning across these, you know, different domains, the more likely we can come up with a you know, a, a sustainable and less costly solution. The more we stay siloed, the more likely we are to have agencies working across purposes. So I, you know, definitely think that's critical and we're looking to do more of that in our, in our research. All right. Thanks, Ralph. Thank you, everyone. Yeah. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.